The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves and said to them on the way, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and scourged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee approached Jesus with her sons and did him homage, wishing to ask him something. He said to her, What do you wish? And she answered him, Command that these two sons of mine sit, one at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Jesus said in reply, You do not know what you are asking. Can you drink the chalice that I am going to drink? And they said to him, We can. He replied, My chalice you will indeed drink, but to sit at my right and at my left, this is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard this, they became indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus summoned them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones make their authority over them felt. But it shall not be so among you. Rather, whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just so, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Gospel of the Lord. We have a wonderfully complex series of notes that the church places before us in our readings today. A complexity that highlights the great depth with which the church reads the scriptures, especially during this holy season of Lent. In our first reading from the prophet Jeremiah, we see an example of what theologians call typology. Jeremiah, the persecuted prophet of the Old Testament, is presented here as a type of the Lord who likewise will be persecuted and made to suffer. In fact, the details that we hear presented in the first reading are echoed quite clearly in the Gospels if we read them with attentiveness, including that idea that we see time and time again in the life of Jesus of his opponents wanting to note down exactly what he says, paying attention to every word he utters, not that they learn from him and not that they will follow him, but that they can find something to use against him. 
And this is what the opponents of Jeremiah say, justifying themselves by saying, the inconvenient, disturbing prophet we can lose because we have other ones. The prophet who tells us what we want to hear. The prophet who is difficult and disturbing we can get rid of because whatever wisdom he offers, we at least have a substitute someplace else. And so note we have this example of the stubborn, hardened heart of man to whom God seeks to address himself, deciding, I will pick and choose what I hear, even to the extent of eliminating the voice that challenges me too much. And so it is then that decisions are made to persecute the prophet, and Jeremiah, however, is not simply a type of Jesus because the people set themselves against him and look to trip him up. Note what he says as he turns to the Lord in prayer. I am speaking and pleading with you on behalf of these guys. And they want to put an end to me. And we see the same thing. The Lord has come to save the world, and the world that he has come to save is precisely the world that rejects him and casts him aside. It's a remarkable uh, parallel between the two. The difference being, however, that Jeremiah crying out to heaven is saying, save me and defend me, Lord. But Jesus' prayer is never save me. I have come to save. It's the difference between the servant who himself still needs salvation and the one who is the Savior. And then we see another difference. Jeremiah doesn't choose the persecution that comes to him. However, he chooses to be faithful within it. The Lord, however, steps out of heaven because he is coming to bear the cross. He is coming to lay his life down. No one takes it from him. Jesus doesn't die because people set their hearts against him. Jesus has come to do that. Note the difference. And so his death is not a burden or an imposition in the same way. And it's this idea now that our gospel reading puts directly in front of us in a very powerful way. And bluntly put, a very spiritually challenging way for all of us who style ourselves his disciples, who call ourselves Christians. The setting of this gospel reading is important. This is one of the last things that happens before the Lord enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And so note where he's going. He is near the end of the journey. They are on the way to Jerusalem and the time is growing short, just like for us. Holy Week is only a few weeks away. So note the context. We're moving too. Spiritually, we move through Lent with the Lord toward the holy days, where we don't merely remember what happened, but we mystically participate in those same movements. And so just like us who are moving with the Lord on the way to Jerusalem, there's a point where the Lord stops and he calls his disciples aside. Not everybody, just his disciples. And he calls them aside because this is important. 
as they are about to enter the holy city for the great work that he is about to do, the Lord wants to make sure that they are well-formed, well-prepared, and ready for what happens. And so he says to them, this is where we're going, and we're almost there. And when we get there, certain things will take place. I will be arrested. I will be condemned to death. I will be handed over to the Gentiles who will scourge me. I will be put to death, and then I will rise. He gives his disciples this final instruction in the word of the cross, that word which is the key to knowing and understanding who the Lord is. Because without the cross, there is no understanding of Jesus Christ. But then something happens, and this is where we need to pay close attention. Now imagine this. This is, in a sense, Jesus is giving a retreat, a private conference, to his disciples. He is opening their hearts to what is about to happen because he wants them to be able to enter into the fullness of what he is doing. And then, just like often happens in our own spiritual life, the prayer gets hijacked. That's the remarkable thing. Mom shows up. And, you know, anybody who's been alive for probably more than 10 minutes has had that experience of the inconvenient arrival of the mother. And so note, she's not even invited. And so the mother who shows up is also the uninvited guest. She barges in. Imagine this. Jesus is sharing the word of the cross with his disciples. It's a difficult word. They're struggling to understand it. And right at that moment where the Lord is saying, I have this for you, someone barges in, places herself in the middle of everything, drops on her knees in front of the Lord, and basically says, I have something I need to ask you. Note how this looks structurally like prayer. She enters, she does him homage, she is on her knees, and she is making a petition. It looks exactly like what prayer is. Think of those moments in your own spiritual life that happen all too regularly. Those moments where you've set aside extra time for the Lord today, and no sooner did you begin, and you even begin to feel some consolation, and all of a sudden, you need to compose your grocery list. All of a sudden, those things that you didn't intend to attend to earlier in the day suddenly present themselves as if you have to pay attention to them now. Notice how easily that happens. The world intrudes, often when the moment of grace is nearest. But here there is a particular kind of intrusion that happens. And this is very important because we hear the mother comes, she places herself before the Lord, but she drags her two boys with her. John and James, the sons of Zebedee. And so note, Jesus is addressing them, and she comes in and pulls them away from where the Lord is addressing them, to herself. 
and she places them before her son. And what an interesting question. As we look at this, the question right now is, spiritually, who is really the mother of your heart? This is not simply an account of a physical mother grabbing her biological sons and bringing them to the Lord. It is also, it is also an accounting of what happens to us where our hearts are so easily hijacked and hijacked by pride. And so note, I have something to ask you. It's so urgent she has to interrupt. It is so urgent it pulls her sons out of their ability to simply sit and receive what the Lord has for them. They are pulled out of the space that Jesus brought them to. And what pulls them out? When you come into your kingdom, I'd like my boys to have the right hand and the left hand seat right next to your throne. And you can almost imagine John and James standing there saying, go mom. But note, note, the Lord is giving the word of the cross. I am going to lay down my life. And how does the human heart respond? But what do I get out of it? What about me? I'm not hearing I'm going to suffer and die. I'm hearing you're going to your glory, and I want some of that. How easily pride will creep in, even and actually sometimes especially in the deepest and most profound moments of prayer. Because our worldly hearts have great difficulty receiving the word of the cross. The spirit of the world is self-asserting. The spirit of the world is self-seeking. The spirit of the world is self-indulgent. The spirit of the world says, me first. And then everybody else can get what they have. And so note what's happening here. The Lord is talking about laying down his life. And what do we see? Me first. How do I advance myself beyond the others? And now the Lord has to do damage control. And so he looks at these two sons and their mother, these men who are now the sons of ambition, the sons of pride, the sons of self-assertion, the sons of advancement. That is what we see here. And if we're honest, this striving for status, for attention, marks all of our lives in one way or another, however little status or affection or whatever we think we have. And so Jesus now has to address this aggressive self-assertion, which has just run counter to everything he's just said. And so he looks at them, and you can almost see the sad, knowing smile on his face. Uh, you have no idea. No idea at all what you are asking for. Because in your pride, your spirit is living in fantasy land. You have no idea what lies ahead and what it means to share my glory and what it means to share my mission. 
And so he says, can you drink the chalice of which I must drink? And he has in mind that chalice that he will struggle to receive himself in his agony in the garden. Let this cup pass me by. But he will drink it and drain it fully. And he looks at them, can you do that? And note the proud and quick answer, of course we can. And again, you can just see the Lord shaking his head. Oh, you'll drink it. But you have no idea what drinking it means yet. But you will. You will, we'll get you there. But you do not know what that means. Sometimes in our desire to follow the Lord, we become ambitious just in our good intentions. Lord, I'll follow you anywhere, but I have no idea what that means. I have no idea where you're going to lead me. And if I'm not careful, what I do is I follow my dream. I follow my ambition. I'm not really following him. And so the Lord says, oh, you will. Well, you've got to understand. These things you ask for, Heaven determines. My Father determines. And Jesus is probably thinking about that moment where he comes into his kingdom, stretching his arms out on the cross. And he has a guy on his right and a guy on his left. And he's thinking, and you two don't want any part of that. Note how quickly the Lord trying to open himself and explain what is happening, even to his closest disciples, how quickly it can go off the rails. There's hope for us. There's hope for us. Because in our disordered spiritual lives, we should take consolation in recognizing this great patience of the Lord. He doesn't rebuke them here. He doesn't send them away here but rather he's going to meet them in that pride that places itself before him and he's going to begin recasting it. And so now having said all of that, the Lord comes around and says, what your heart desires is greatness. That's not a bad thing. You're just desiring the wrong kind. And here we come to a very significant element of the spiritual life. It's language we don't often use today. In an earlier period in the church, there was great preoccupation among spiritual masters with the idea of perfection and being called to perfection. And this was not an idea of being better than everybody else. It was not an idea of, hey, look at me and see I am what you are not. It was this. If I am serious about following the Lord, I want to get it right. But I don't just want to get it right in the most basic, minimal way possible. I'd like to live it as fully as I can. Note the difference. And this is not about so that I advance. It's because the one I love is worth it. To grow perfect for the one who is calling perfection out of me. And so the Lord is saying, your heart is desiring something. 
but your worldliness has distorted that desire. The proudness with it, the pride within you, the ambition within you is reaching like Adam and Eve did for greatness in the wrong way. Because greatness is not a matter of self-assertion. Perfection is not merely a matter of rising in status. Rather, real glory consists in laying oneself aside. And that becomes the perfection of love. And so he says to them, if you want to be great, then don't look to rule. If you want to be great, then don't look to rise above others. If you want to be great, curiously enough, look down. Look down and place yourself beneath as the one who serves and lifts others up. That's greatness. That's greatness. Worldly advancement and climbing to rise above others has nothing of greatness within it, at least no greatness that is real. But being willing to lift another up, even above yourself, that indeed is a great heart. And he says, and if you want to be first, if you want to be first, meaning if you really seek perfection, then become the slave of all. That one who is totally dedicated to the betterment of others, to the advancement of others. What a remarkably powerful statement this is. And who is saying it? But the one who laid aside his glory and stepped out of heaven, as scripture says, taking the form of a slave being becoming yet more humble, obediently accepting even death, death on a cross, and because of this, God greatly exalted him. The cross is the ladder to glory. There is no other way. And note, however, now, the Lord still gets us to where we need to be, but he has to take this long way around because our proud hearts get in the way that call to lay ourselves aside and deny ourselves is something that is so very hard for us to really receive and really make our own. There is always that which in us that wants to shine forth, that wants to stand out. This in no small measure is why across the centuries it is exactly at this point in the spiritual life where the church has most strongly counseled the faithful to turn to Our Lady. She who is given to this same Apostle John as he stands at the foot of the cross. And note what happens. When he stands with the Lord at the cross, he becomes the son, not of the proud mother, not of the ambitious mother, not of the self-asserting mother, but of the humble virgin, the faithful virgin. Note the difference. Who is the mother of your heart? Is it the ambitious mother? Or is it the blessed mother? Am I the son or the daughter of pride, or am I the son or the daughter of humility? Am I the son and the daughter of self-assertion, 
or, I am the, or am I the son or the daughter of self-sacrifice? What an important question that really is. And if we're honest, the answer probably is, on any given day, I'm a bit of both. And that's all right. That's where we start. But the Lord here is marking out then the way we need to move. We need to move away from that pride which can so easily master us, that humility and faithfulness which roots us more fully in him. And note how wonderful it is that this same Lord who gives us this teaching in just a few minutes on this altar will be here praying for us and for our salvation. And from that altar, he will come forward to you, he who is the first and the greatest of all. And he places himself in your hand to feed you, to sustain you, and to lift you up. This is exactly the movement that Jesus invites us into. And so note, the sacrament that we celebrate here when we pay attention to how the Lord comes to us and how the Lord is present to us is itself the ultimate catechesis in what the Lord is trying to communicate to us. I have come not to be served, but to serve. I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. And note that he means not just once. That is who I am. And if you would share my glory, if you would live according to my spirit, that indeed is who you must become. What a marvelous call that is. Difficult, but beautiful beyond any beauty this world can offer. Amen.